0: In August of 2006, Christina and I bought our first home, but after we toured it for the first time, uh, we felt differently about it. Uh, Christina thought, this isn't the house, and I thought, this is the house, and it was not a nice house, I will say that. Uh, The shower in the only tiny bathroom didn't work. Uh, The periwinkle painted kitchen came complete with old white metal cabinets with red handles and a worn yellow linoleum floor. One cabinet door had a huge dent in it, and uh, one of the drawers only opened a few inches because of the door trim in the way, so it, it was very interesting, and there were other problems too. But I saw potential. The question was, was I able to get Christina to see the potential? And so on a printed picture, a black and white picture of the house, I drew cute little uh, shutters and window boxes to try to really make this look like something to show her what the house could be. Uh, And its bones were really good. It was, one guy said that it was built like a battleship. I mean, it was built really well. It just needed some TLC. And, uh, And with some TLC, it could be quite charming. And so... In time, through some dust and some sweat, uh, our little house in Pittsburgh was restored to charming. Uh, When we sold it, it, it was a really cute house. Now, there is a reason why people love shows like Fixer Upper or Hometown or This Old House. People love restoration. People love restoration. People like Chip and Joanna Gaines, they have a unique gift. They see the obvious. Okay, it is a neglected and dilapidated house, in many cases quite awful. But they look beyond to what the house could be with some TLC. And they love the idea of getting engaged, getting their hands dirty, doing the hard work of restoration to restore the house. We are like houses, we sometimes need to be restored as Christians. We sometimes neglect our spiritual health and we act unlovely. Uh, We might not even realize our transgression, but other saints do. The shepherding and accountability of the local church is a lovely gift from God. When Christians lovingly bear one another's burdens... Uh, and tenderly address sin in each other's lives, like Paul was doing for the Galatians, it is uniquely beautiful and transformative. The world can't do spiritual transformation. They just can't do it. Sadly, many Christians live in spiritual isolation. Now, don't get me wrong. They're around other Christians, but they don't really open up their lives and invite accountability, nor do do they give it. God has told us it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. A lot of churchgoers would rather hear the song of fools than hear the rebuke of the wise. Sadly, is the case. We all need Spirit-filled, Spirit-led people to help us when we are caught in transgression and we need to walk in step with the Spirit so that we can help others caught in transgression. This is what true love looks like in the family of God. So here's where I'm going this morning. Let us lovingly bear one another's burdens by the pace of and power of the Holy Spirit to bring beautiful restoration to one another's lives. So let's start here, brothers and sisters. What does serving one another through love in step with the pace and power of the Holy Spirit look like practically? What does that look like practically? What what does a healthy church look like practically? Well, Paul has been answering that in chapter 5. A big part of his answer is walking by the Spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh. It's putting the works of the flesh to death and keeping in step with the Spirit, who is growing the sweet and delicious fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control in your life so that you can share it with others. That's healthy. But Paul gets clearer, telling the Galatian churches to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we serve one another through love and fulfill the law of Christ when we bear one another's burdens. Burden bearing is the responsibility and the privilege of adopted children of God. They love God. They love their father. Therefore, they love the family of of God. They love the children of God. They love the church and are committed to its health and committed to its well-being. It should come as no surprise then that having been justified in Christ and set free from the law, we are now to fulfill the law of Christ. How? Well, let's get even more practical. Number one, we must realize that we all have blind spots. You and I, have spiritual blind spots sometimes sin sneaks up on us and all of a sudden we find ourselves caught in it sometimes it can take a while for us to recognize it Uh, and then we come to realize after a bit wait a second what am I doing why am I living like this how did I get here this is not good for me we all have spiritual blind spots verse 1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Paul's not referring to shameless and intentional acts of defiance. Okay? To be caught in transgression is more about ignorance or unawareness. It's like you're driving on the highway and, and you check your rearview mirrors and so you just start to merge on over and then all of a sudden in and it smash and it flips your car. I mean, it was up on you like a like a quick moment You were spiritually careless. And in your driving away from sin, you're driving away, you're heading away, you allowed sin to fly up on you and and smash the car a bit. We all have blind spots. And we need to realize that our brothers and sisters in Christ can see into our blind spots and they can, can work to help us avoid a crash. Or they come alongside us and help restore the car after we've crashed. That's what love looks like. Dr. R. Kent Hughes, he's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, really sharp man at a long preaching ministry. And I love what he says about the church. The church is a mess worth making. But the challenge and heartache of the church's messiness is this. It almost always involves people. We're the mess and the mess makers. Dealing with the mess we call the church then requires knowing how to work through the messes we ourselves make, end of quote. And that's exactly right. And spirit-filled and spirit-led people help clean up the mess. They do the hard work of restoration, the restoration of people. Number two, We must together restore those caught in transgression with great gentleness. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is how to handle sin in the church, and sin must be handled in the church. This is how to do it. All right, those who are spiritual are those who have the Spirit and who walk in step with the Spirit. The spiritual are not some elite group of of Christians, some elite category of, of believers, but rather all believers, and all believers are called to the work of restoration. What does it mean to restore someone caught in transgression? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean getting them saved. Okay, They're already saved. To restore is to bring a fellow believer who is caught in sin back to spiritual health and well-being. They were spiritually careless. They got caught in transgression and they need your help to get back to spiritual health. Restoring is nursing at its best. There was a big mess in the Galatian churches. Paul was training them to work through the mess with love and gentleness Now, there are a few truths that I think are implied in verse 1. First, in order to restore family members to spiritual health with gentleness, we need to know God's law and gospel in order to recognize transgression. If if, if there's no way to recognize what a transgression is, then what are we going to do? We're lost. We need to know God's law and gospel. Second, we need to recognize that if we are truly spiritual, if we are, um, have the Holy Spirit in us and we're walking by the Spirit, then restoration is our responsibility. If you are a child of God, restoration is your responsibility. I think that's assumed here. Restore, in verse 1, is an imperative, which means it's God's command to you and me, brothers and sisters, Third, we need to walk in step with the Spirit so that we can gently restore others. If we we don't have the Spirit working gentleness in us, how are we going to gently restore others? Those who truly love get appropriately involved with other people's lives, with other people's sinful mess. They get involved because they love. They, They don't sit there silently watching while their family members play with fire. All right. how do we restore with some tlc tender loving care gentleness gentleness is supernatural grace harsh and rough christians are self-contradictory and dangerous indifferent and tolerant christians are equally self-contradictory and dangerous but gentle And restorative Christians are a loving gift from our Father because God uses them to nurse us back to spiritual health, to spiritual growth, to spiritual well-being. Keep in mind, Paul's not talking about flagrant and deliberate rebellion against God. That's not the category that he's talking about here. That's handled differently. Paul's talking about believers caught in transgression, which must be handled with gentleness. G- think about this: Jesus was tough and judgmental with the Pharisees. And yet, very gentle, very restorative with Peter after Peter denied him three times. See the difference? Gentleness. Gentleness is not avoiding confrontation. No? Gentleness is how you confront. It's how you restore. Confrontation must happen in the church. But the goal of confrontation is restoration, not condemnation. And restoration must be done with utmost gentleness. Forgiveness being a huge part of restoration in the church. Oh, how much we need the Holy Spirit to do this work of restoration well. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, saints, there is a time to overlook an offense. You let it go. It's not worth it. There's a time for that. But we need the Spirit's discernment to know when and how to gently restore those caught in transgression. And we need to bring them back to spiritual health and vitality again. We, we, we need this message If we are to be a healthy church, if you care at all about Jerusalem Church's long-term health and viability as a church, then we need to be a restorative community. We need to be a safe place for hurting people, struggling people. Jerusalem Church, if we're to be that, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to keep in step with the Spirit, and we need to be gentle. Oh, so gentle. We need to be a gentle church working to restore those caught in transgression. We're doing something. We're just doing it. The confrontation, the restoration with gentleness. One of my recent prayer requests as, a, uh, as your brother in Christ is for gentleness, uh, I, you know, confessions, I'm really not naturally a gentle person. I'm naturally abrasive. Um, and and I, I just love being around like seasoned saints. I've seen it in certain pastors, and it's just this winsome gentleness that is so helpful to me and helpful to the church. And so this is, this is really hitting me, uh, th- this whole sermon here that I want to be a gentleman. You know, I'm a pretty straightforward guy. I'm black and white in so many things. I'm a high truth guy, and, and I'm a passionate guy, and I actually love and serve you with those traits. That's who I am, and I want, to, I want, I want God to use those, and he is, and, and as the Spirit hones those things and uses me, I struggle along the way to be gentle. And, and I want it so bad. I've struggled all my life to be gentle, Ask my parents. They're here. They'll tell you as a little kid, not a real gentle kid. It's so hard to get the tone of confrontation and restoration right. Yet we know that gentleness is the tone. We've got to do it with gentleness. We have to do it. I've been involved with quite a bit of confrontation. So we're completely left Dependent upon our master's grace to to, uh, give us the gentleness that he himself exudes. We need him so much. I need him. Number three, we must together restore those caught in transgression while keeping watch on ourselves. I think verse one is better translated keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The work of gentle spiritual restoration is done while keeping watch on our own holiness. Now, if we're looking into the blind spots of others, which we should lovingly and gently do, we should also be constantly checking our own mirrors because we all sometimes succumb to the fast-approaching desires of the flesh. Check your mirrors. Now, if you're ever in a sword fight, uh, with some bad guys, all right. I don't think it'll happen, honestly. Uh, but if you ever are, um, and that does happen, and if I'm there with you, okay, uh, I'm gonna work to deflect some swords from hitting your head. I'm gonna, I will commit to to doing that if we're ever in a sword fight together, and and I'll try to deflect the sword. And I hope that you do the same for me. All right. Let it hit his head, Lord. You know. I hope that's not your demeanor, but. Um, but but if you do get cut in this sword fight, this theoretical sword fight, which is ridiculous, uh, I will try to nurse your wounds, okay? But I would be foolish if while nursing your wounds, I started bragging about how great my wound care was. And then a bad guy cuts my head off because I ignored what was fast approaching from behind me. That would be totally foolish, Paul's idea here is, yes, care for one another's wounds, but don't drop your guard as you do. Watch your own back, too. Work to restore your brothers and sisters caught in transgression. Yes, you must do that. You must do it with spirit, uh, gentle spirit. But as you do, make sure you walk by the Spirit so that you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. The idea is, I'm loving you by looking into your blind spots. you're loving me by looking into my blind spots, but we're all checking our rear view mirror as well, at the same time. Does that make sense? All right. Great. Number four: we must bear one another's burdens in order to obey the law of Christ. What are burdens? Well, generally speaking, they're earthly hardships, things like cancer, chronic pain, financial loss, being abused, grieving the loss of loved ones, and so forth, there are many, many burdens. And they're heavy burdens. But notice that Paul uses the word burdens in the context of transgression, transgression, So I think burdens refers here in in this place most precisely to the struggles we all have with the desires and the works of the flesh, With, with sneaking sin, which is all the time sneaking around us, and it gets tiring and it's a burden. Calvin said, quote, the weaknesses or sins under which we groan are called burdens, end of quote. External hardships, they are no doubt extremely heavy to bear. But the heaviest of burdens is our struggle with the flesh. And our struggle against our flesh is a burden that is too heavy to bear alone. We can't do it alone. Period. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, why did James write that? Because God calls his children to bear each other's burdens so that healing and spiritual health and well-being will come. Could it be that you have not experienced healing in some sinful struggle because you have kept the matter private and bore the burden yourself. You're bearing it. One study note said, another Christian's ensnarement in sin is not his private problem but is a burden that others must bear with him and intervene to help him escape. Do you understand? I think that's right. Okay, so your friend Norman, who has a friend Norman? Nobody. We don't know any Normans. Well, now you do. So your friend Norman, he was careless with his fireplace and you're walking by his house and you notice flames leaping over the hearth and creeping towards Norman who's sitting on the couch reading Hamlet. There he is, he doesn't know. You see, oh, the flames are going towards Norman. Oh no, you're outside of his house looking in. What, what are you gonna do? Boy, Norman's really in trouble. I gotta grab lunch. I mean, no. Norman! You're going to respond. You're going to run into the house. You're going to, Norman, the flames. You've got to get out, Norman. You don't watch Norman burn. His problem becomes your problem. Why? Because you love Norman. This is not rocket science. Your intervention is not to belittle Norman. It's not to embarrass Norman. It's to help Norman escape. Save Norman. I should be t-shirts, save Norman, you know, with this big weird picture of Norman on the back. When I was in high school, we went to a homeless place, I guess, or a poor, I I don't remember exactly where it was, I wish I had more details, but our youth group went to serve a meal, and we prepared the food and took it there, and my friend Dennis and I were supposed to carry in this uh, roasting pot, the big stainless steel roasting pots, and and uh, it was filled with, I think, stuffing or something like that. Well, it was heavy. And it was warm. And it was a bit greasy. And it was a bit awkward for the two of us to carry it. And it wasn't really working. It was just one of those awkward moments. And in the middle of it, Dennis was like, give it to me. And he takes it long ways. And he gets it down the steps. And he gets it inside. And he's on the floor. And all of a sudden, dear Dennis's legs start to buckle. And Dennis dumps it. And it goes flying and poof, right there on the floor. And the stuffing was all on the ground. The youth leaders were probably like, why did we bring them? But they're looking at this. you know what we did? We scraped it off the top and put it back in. We tried to do it, and we served it. Were we wrong? (laughs) Were we wrong to serve it? Probably. It probably wasn't my my, uh, decision to do that, but the adults are to blame. Come on. That image of Dennis's tall, lanky legs, but it, it, its hilarious to me. I love the story, but uh, we can't bear our our burdens by ourselves. You, you just—you can't do it. They're too heavy. Dr. Timothy George said, "Quote: The myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but rather a sign of pride." End of quote. When we live in spiritual isolation. When we are tight-lipped about our spiritual burdens and struggles, when we allow one another to labor and to sweat unaided because we have our own problems, and so who am I to step in and to help them bury their... It's pride. We're prideful, and we will not be strong, and we will not be healthy. In a spiritual sense, we'll look and act like a stubborn and emaciated ICU patient trying to carry their hospital bed home because they're scared to be sick and they don't like hospitals anymore, so there they go. It's absurd. How do we bear one another's burdens? Making meals, hospital visitation, generous financial gifts, transportation, helping around the house, they're all really, really, really good. We should do those things, but we must go deeper and share the burdens and struggles of our flesh, our flesh, sinful struggles that we're all going through. We we truly love each other when we help each other avoid sin, heal from sin, and pursue Christ. That's what the church looks like. The the law of Christ is different from the law of Moses with its ceremonies and rituals. We have been freed by Christ to joyfully observe the law of Christ as slaves of Christ and one another. God's moral law still stands and explains how we are to go about loving one another. Jesus not only affirmed the moral law, he made it even clearer in his teaching ministry. He fulfilled it. He is what morality looks like. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Do you get the picture? If we are to fulfill the law of Christ, we should carefully observe and apply all that Christ has taught. All that Christ affirmed. Renowned scholar F.F. F. Bruce said this The law of Christ is for Paul the whole tradition of Jesus' ethical teaching, confirmed by his character and conduct, and reproduced within his people by the power of the Spirit. That's really, really important, that last part. Reproduced within his people by the power of the Spirit. Jesus didn't abolish the moral law of God. He affirmed and avowed and fulfilled it so that it would be reproduced in us by his grace and power. Now Jesus is not only our example which he is, but he is our pace and our power of love. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5:14 that the love of Christ controls us. I love that imagery. The love of Christ controls us. Number 5. We must be humble and not deceive ourselves about our own weakness and need. Uh, Dr. William Hendrickson translated verse 3 like this, For if anyone imagines that he amounts to something while he amounts to nothing, he is deluding himself. Have have you ever heard of another Christian, a brother or sister's spiritual struggle, Their, their pain, their burden, and you thought to yourself, Hmm, that's terrible. I would. Never. Have you ever done that? One time I heard a pastor say, in reference to another uh, group's actions, I think, uh, I don't remember all the details, but he said, I would never do that. And I just was like, oh, that's a groaner. Yes, you would. And you would do worse. If not for the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Self-love. Self-love. And self-confidence and self-esteem are self-deception. There's nothing about us to esteem. We must esteem Christ alone, for he alone is righteous. We cannot boast in Christ and at the same time boast in ourselves. Apart from Christ, we are nothing. Let us ever remember that Christ is and continues to be our righteousness, and without him, we are nothing. Calvin rightly concluded, first then, He declares that we are nothing, by which he means that we have nothing of our own, of which we have a right to boast, but are destitute of everything good so that all our glorying is mere vanity. None of us is hot stuff. No one. Anything good that we are and we have and we do, is entirely Christ in us. Grace upon grace upon grace. He alone is our righteousness. He alone is our glory. He alone is our reason for boasting. To attribute anything to us is to lie to ourselves. Boast in Christ alone. And your capacity to love is enormous. Considering all that Christ is for us, how can we think we're something? Christ alone is something. There is no time to esteem ourselves when we are busy esteeming Christ. We walk in the light of His glory and grace. Number six, we must measure ourselves by the pace and power of the Spirit in us and not by comparing ourselves to others, to one another. Now, verse four is tricky. A track with Paul here. He writes this but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now wait, I thought Paul said not to think that we are something. Now he's telling us to test our work and to boast in ourselves alone? What's up with that? Well, look closely at the phrase and not in his neighbor. That's key. Let's say you notice that your sister in Christ is caught in some transgression and you may begin to think, man, she's in bad shape. I'm so glad I'm not where she is and caught up in all of that. (sighs) I'm doing pretty good compared to her. Where is the source of your boasting in that? It's actually you in comparison with your sister who is caught in transgression. Why are you comparing yourself to her? Why don't you do better and compare yourself to God's law? Now, how are you doing in the test? How's that working out for you? Feelings of superiority among the family of God are absurd because they ignore the preeminence and sufficiency of Christ. The the comparison game is bad. It's always bad. You lose every time. I lose every time. And your pride and my pride, it hurts others. Instead, we must humbly evaluate our work on the basis of whether the Holy Spirit is producing it in us, is working in us. Our boast is not in our brother's failure, not in our sister's failure, but in the Spirit's success. God's perfect law keeps us oh so humble. I fall short of the glory of God every day. I can't do your law perfectly, God. But, but look at the Spirit's work and look at the Spirit's fruit and look at the Spirit's progress in your life and look at that as the source of your boasting. We boast in grace, fantastic and sovereign and amazing grace. Our boast must be in the Spirit's provision. The Spirit's grace, the Spirit's mercy, and the Spirit's power, and the Spirit's victory in us. That's what we boast in. Look what God has done for me in regards to any good that you see in me or any good that is being produced in you. Our boast must be, look at how the Spirit has provided for me a weak and struggling but loved and accepted child of God. Look at the Spirit. Look at what he's made me. Look at what he is making me. Let us rejoice in what our Lord has provided us, and let us not rejoice in our brother's failure. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. I love that statement. Because of God, we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, you know how it goes? Boast in the Lord. In the Lord. You are not the good. Christ is the good in you. Paul expresses a similar truth again in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, and 18. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. A marathon is 26.2 miles of rigorous running, and I want you to imagine a runner standing, okay, at mile marker 10 with his hands on his knees and wheezing and coughing, and he thinks he's going to throw up. And he looks like it. I mean, he's about ready to. And he's looking back at a guy laying, another runner, laying delirious on the road at mile marker eight. And he's thinking, what a loser. What a complete loser. He couldn't even make it past mile marker eight. I'm still standing at ten. All the while, the winner of the race has already finished, received his medal, and is enjoying a hamburger and a a Coke in the winner's tent. He's already done. Comparing ourselves to others is absurd, and our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus Christ, who is our victor, and how he will come back and help us finish the race well. The the Galatian churches, they were arrogant and they were looking to their own law-keeping. If I can just do this and this, then, then that is my boasting. And it was creating this big mess in those churches. Truth be told. After all that I've said in all the other sermons of how works do not contribute in any way, shape, or form to our justification, now I'm going to tell you we have to work. We have to work. We must test our work, but we must realize that any work we do is pure grace and not merit. Heidelberg, once again, super helpful, question 63 asks this, but do our good works earn nothing? even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And the answer is beautiful. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Are you measuring yourself by the faults and failures of others or by God's law and the pace and power of the Spirit in you? Uh, Saints, the only thing we have to boast in is God's lavish grace Mercy, goodness to us. Any good work that we do is the Spirit's work in us. It's, it's not merit in any way. It is grace. His kindness, his goodness. Brothers and sisters, let us realize this. To God be the glory. There's a reason that we say to God be the glory. Great things he has done and is doing and will do in us. Don't puff yourselves up when your brother uh, or your sister falls into sin. That's ridiculous. Instead, with your eyes on the perfection of Christ and with humility and gentleness in your heart, look into one another's blind spots and, and with gentleness and humility in your heart, lovingly work to restore your brothers and your sisters to spiritual health those who are caught in transgression, bear one another's burdens and bear it with selflessness and bear it with humility and bear it with love and so fulfill the law of Christ together. Why? Why should we do this? For the glory of God shining in his church because nobody else does this. We do, the children of God. We restore people. We know what it's like to nurse people back to health. The world doesn't. They're going to confuse you and lie to you along the way. The church, the church knows Are we broken? Have we done this well? No, 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 no. But we must aspire to this. I believe that our church can be a restorative place, a safe place for people to say, I'm really struggling with this A, B, or C, and we say, we're with you. Now come along, let us come along and bear that with you because we love you and we want you to know Christ. I believe it can happen here and if it does, this is going to be, a, this is already a very unique place. It will be even more of a unique place. If we're not trampling on each other, you wrestle with that, you sick and twist. I would never. You sure that's where we want to land? I don't. Because I know and am learning the depths of my own depravity. So let us be very careful. Let us lovingly bear one another's burden by the pace and power of the Spirit, not in any sense of superiority, but rather to bring beautiful restoration to one another's lives. That work of the Spirit would be what restored the Galatian churches, and you know what? That work of the Spirit will restore ours. Number seven, we must remember that we carry our own responsibility and will answer to God. For the work we've done. Verse 5 is also a bit tricky. First, Paul tells the Galatians to bear one another's burdens, and then he says, For each will have to bear his own load. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? Which is it? Well, the word load in verse 5 is a different Greek word than burden in verse 2. Dr. John Stott explained it like this So we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But there is one burden which we cannot share. Indeed, do not need to because it is a pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack I cannot, and I cannot carry yours. End of quote. So we each have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. Each of us will stand before God and give an account of all of our works what are you doing now by the work of the spirit in you what is god's grace producing in you right now test your work evaluate your work will it stand the test does it hold up are you able to boast in what god is doing right now in your life saints we each have a load to bear and and in the not too distant future we will give an account for it saints You are justified in Christ. You will never be more accepted and loved than what you are right now. Therefore, you have a responsibility as an adopted child of God. Are you serving the family, your brothers and sisters? Are you serving them by bearing their burdens? Okay, that's your load to bear. That's my load to bear. That's our responsibility as a church. If we are not doing that, we are not faithful to Christ in that area. Hasn't God graciously given you and given me what we need, exactly what we need to do this kind of love, to love this way? Do we not have the Spirit? Now, if this seems, in hearing this, like just a a big burden to do, then I don't think you understand Paul. Paul. I don't think you understand the joy and satisfaction of walking in step with the Spirit. Living in this kind of community and intimacy with God and our brothers and sisters is the greatest blessing of life. The world cannot compare to what this could be. This is how to live free. This is how to truly love. Loving like this, like what Paul is talking about, will bring you more joy and fulfillment than 10,000, 10 million, 10 trillion worldly pleasures. Because this kind of loving lifestyle bears eternal rewards and pleasures. And So I want to tell you as I bring it to a close here that I see some of you bearing one another's burdens. And it is beautiful. And it is so encouraging to me and so encouraging to others in the church. It's just so encouraging. And others see it. And you're walking in step with the spirit and you're loving like this. And you're confessing sin to one another. And you're tenderly helping others bear their struggle with the flesh. You're praying for one another for healing, and I believe healing is happening. You're growing, and I see it, and in some cases, God has been pleased to put me on the front row. I'm involved with it. I'm part of it, and it's exciting to see the Spirit work in you as you help one another grow, as you help one another flourish. So I just want to say, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Grow, go deeper, and yet, I also think that some of you have yet to taste the sweetness of having your burdens borne by others and truly bearing one another's burdens. It seems as if some of you live spiritually isolated lives. I'm just going to be frank about that. And no one really knows your sinful struggles. You've never really opened up about it. And you hide them on purpose. And you're bent over. You're living bent over under the weight of bearing your burdens alone. They're yours to bear. And you feel that way and it's so heavy for you and it's just draining you of joy. Other people can see it. You can feel it. And your spiritual remoteness and your pride is actually preventing your healing and your health. And and so you miss out on many rich and deep blessings of true community. So in some cases, people are looking into your blind spots. They can see right into your blind spots and, and they're actually concerned about you, but you might not even see it. So, are you ready to share your burdens? Because people can't love you if you are not opening up. Your self-righteousness, that's what it is. Let's call it what it is. Your self-righteousness, your pride, your fear, your anxiety, fill in the blank is hurting you more than you think. And oh, that we would, would be able to bear your burdens with you. We love you. We we're here for you. We care about your restoration. We're ready to help you. We're ready to come alongside and love you practically. You don't have to bear that heavy load yourself. Open your life up to us. Let us in and let us love you. And on a practical matter, you do not have to stand up here and release all your dirty laundry. That is not what I'm talking about. If you've got one, two, three close people that you're like spirit-filled, love them, I'm just going to go to them and open them up. I've done this. Your pastor is accountable right now, is open up to other people to speak truth into my life. I'm not asking you to do something I'm not currently doing. You don't have to tell everybody. Tell a few that you trust and that you know. Invite them in. Allow them to bear your burden. And I'm talking about struggles, sinful struggles of the flesh that we just can't seem to get over. Invite people in. To pray for you, to encourage you. You're not alone. Whatever sick and twisted thing you're dealing with, I am too, and so are we all. It, it can, I'm not sure we all believe that actually, because if we did, we'd be able to freely confess those things. But instead, we sit there thinking, what would they know if they knew this? It's a poor doctrine of sin. We don't understand. Everybody's wrestling with something, and it's all related. Isn't it all idolatry? I'm going to go after this and not God? Okay, so we're in this together, right? Nobody should be ashamed. And I'm gonna, it's not in the notes, but I really, this is a burden for me. What if sexual sin in the church, you won't hear it shared much when so many people, read the, read the secular papers, sexual sin everywhere. It's not just transgenderism, LGBTQ, it goes way beyond that. Lust, pornography, so deep. People bearing the burden. And if someone was to say, I've got to say, oh man, get ready to get a boot to the face. It's ungodly. It's, I, I would want someone here, and I hope we are this type of church. I hope God is making us this type of church where if a Christian who is committed to Christ said, I am struggling with same-sex attraction and I need help. I want to repent. I want to grow, that we'd say, We love you. You are in the right place. We are here to bear that burden with you because guess who else is sexually broken? The pastor. All right, everybody can relax because I'm not the source of of righteousness. Who is? Christ. We're all broken. You're broken. Way worse than you could imagine, and so am I. And who is loving us along the way? Christ. Who's helping us bear one another burdens? The Spirit. This better be a safe place. I, I need it to be a safe place, or else you'll run me out and get another guy who's going to have problems too. How about being my brother and sister and caring about what your pastor's struggling with, and I'll try to care about what you're, and we'll try to do it in a spirit of gentleness, and we'll do it with prayer, and we'll battle the flesh, and we'll team up on it, and we'll put those sins to death, and we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And we'll walk in holiness and victory and growth and we'll have the joy with each other of doing that. Isn't that what you want? That's why I come to church. If you're not in that game, you're missing what church is all about. I just wonder, who's really into this church thing? Who really loves Christ? Who really loves his people? It shows by how you bear one another's burdens, how you let other people bear yours. It shows. Who knows Christ? Brothers and sisters, we're kind of like houses. We need TLC. And just so we all hear it, we're not alone. You're not alone in your struggle. You're, you're not. You are not. There are a bunch of people right now in this room ready to give some tender, loving care to you, ready, ready to help bear your burdens. They're ready. They're waiting for that opportunity to love like this because there's a blessing in it. It's better to give than to receive. We want to give, and we want to receive, and we want it all, and so let us lovingly bear one another's burdens by the pace and power of the Spirit to bring beautiful restoration to one another's lives, to the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, my, my prayer is really si- uh, simple, uh, that we as a church would be Spirit-led, and that we would be about the business of bearing one another's burdens. No, we don't have to get up on a Sunday morning and confess all of our dirty laundry, but yes, we should confess those deep things to brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and who can walk, the spiritual people, the people who really are in the game. They, they love Christ and love the church, and so we come together and help us to bear one another's burdens, help us to love, to love deeply, and to work to restore those caught in Transgression. We love you, God, and we pray that your spirit would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.